And welcome back to another episode of the Shuttlepod podcast. This is Shuttlepod episode number 91, and today is Friday, December 18th, 2020. Um, I'm your host, Kaylee Yacovino, and I am joined by my good friends, Jared Whitley. Hey, hailing frequencies open, Captain. <laughs> and returning favorite, John DeJock. How's everyone doing? Welcome back, John. Pretty good, pretty good. Good to have you back on the show. It's been a while, John. It has. Um, I'm very glad to be pinch hitting today and very excited to get into our topic. So today we wanted to talk about uh, a specific episode. And I actually don't believe we've ever done an entire podcast dedicated to one episode. No. The first episode Brian and I did it was one episode, The Changeling versus The Motion Picture. But even then, that, was, that wasn't right. just about one episode. So I don't think we have. That's as close as we've come. Yeah. To be fair, though, we're sort of couching this in a a bigger discussion. So I've, um, as many people know, because I talk about it constantly on the shuttle pod, been going through a full rewatch of TNG, you know, watching one or two episodes a night kind of slowly. Um, And I'm in, I guess we're in season five now, but recently was in season four, uh, watching one of my favorite episodes, which I've just seen several times in the last few years. I've seen a lot of times over the many years, uh, The Drumhead which is a season four, episode 21. Um, and this is the episode, if you recall, where there was an investigation um, on board the Enterprise and this uh, famous uh, admiral is brought out of retirement, basically, in order to handle like this one last case. Um, and she's looking for some kind, of a, uh, some kind of a mole spy on the Enterprise. And they, they, they quickly find one person and they, they take care of him. But then this woman decides that, oh, there must be more here and kind of starts looking for a conspiracy, um, which ends them in a, sort of a witch trial type of thing. Yeah. And we have talked about this episode on the show before because we've talked about this. I know at least in one episode we talked about Picard's best speeches. Because mm. um, he, he gives two or three really excellent speeches in this episode um and what what we wanted to focus on today though was not only going over this episode and talking about how we feel about it but talking about it in the greater context of social commentary in star trek star trek is something that is a show that people know for putting on these sort of more heady more intellectual stories that often you know hold a mirror to society in one way or the other um, that's one of the the things Star Trek is sort of most famous for. I think what a lot of people really love about it. And I, this is just one of my personal favorite episodes in general of Star Trek, the drumhead. Um, I, I, maybe it's just those Picard speeches because I love him, but. No, the whole um, episode is spectacular. But it really is spectacular. So why don't we start, um, di- like dive into the episode a bit and we can so kind of talk can I, about. Can I talk about my framework I wanted to couch this in? For oh, my please. Yeah, I- yeah, yeah. iconoclastic social media, or not social media, social commentary ideas. Okay, so, so and we, we talked, chatted about this a little bit before we started recording. So I think Star Trek's social commentary is something that very much like Gene's vision 
has been mythologized over and over again at conventions and documentaries over the decades to the point where I think people can't really talk about, so frequently people don't talk about it intelligently and they sort of take it as a foregone conclusion that because Star Trek has done some social commentary that has been extraordinary, that every time they do it, it's always a home run, which I think is not the case. And I'm going to be perfectly honest. I think specifically like with the Berman era, the more there are more mediocre social commentary episodes than there are exceptional ones. Right. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that's too strong to say? Um, I mean, I guess my initial reaction is that, it, that I wouldn't agree with it, but I haven't, you know, I would have to sit down and actually count the episodes or here. I'm curious to hear your thoughts okay. on it. Cause it's so not here, something I've thought here, extensively about. Here are my thoughts. Okay. And Kale, I mentioned this a little bit to you, John, to the, uh, before a couple of weeks ago. John, so John, forgive me. This is a little new with you. Okay. So I come up with like three or four different things that you need for a social commentary episode to be really good. One, the writing still has to be good, right? You can't address an important topic and it retroactively makes your writing exceptional, right? You can't just take something that's a big topic uh, with civil rights or whatever and say, oh, because we're talking about this important issue, then my writing is amazing, right? Sure. You still have to create a piece of literature. It still has to exist on its own as something that is entertaining to read. And there's this great quote. Have, you, have either of you ever read, um, are you Stephen King fans? Mm, yeah. I've, not, I've actually, I don't know if I've ever finished one of his books, though. I'm, I'm really bad about finishing books. So the only one of his that I've read is his autobiography, which is called On Writing, which anybody who writes in any capacity needs to read it. I wish I'd read it 10 years earlier than I did. And mm. in there, he talks about like symbolism and trying to talk to higher meanings in, in his literature. And he says, he says, uh, uh, if you find something that, that's broader, like more, there's some kind of message you want to tell, that's great, but don't start there and try to work backwards. And he says this thing, it's burned into my mind. Symbolism exists to adorn and enrich, not to imbue with a false sense of profundity. Right? Hmm. And so one example, there's of a very mediocre Star Trek social commentary episode. Say, Kayla, you mentioned in the fifth season, is the episode Violations where it's their episode about rape. And it's like, okay, well, is that a good episode? Is it well-written? Is it interesting? What's the commentary on this very serious subject? It's nothing at all. It's just, eh, this is this kind of important thing. I guess we'll shoehorn it into a, uh, an episode about these creepy space telepath perverts, right? I, mm. I, that episode does mm. not work at all. It's an important mm. topic, but they didn't, have good writing first. Anyway, that's my first one. What do you, what do you think about that? How would you respond to that? I, I agree with you there, uh, Jared. I, I think that the bottom line with any, any type of episodic TV um, in this medium or really in any storytelling whatsoever is that you have to have good writing. Yeah. You know, um, just because you are tackling a timely subject uh, or something that maybe the Star Trek franchise has not talked about before doesn't necessarily mean you get points for doing so. Um, you have to tell a really good story um, that sort of justifies your exploration of the topic. I think that's an example where the drumhead, in my opinion, excels. Absolutely. Um, 
I'd have to probably, in your, to your point about the Berman era and um, social commentary, I'd, I'd probably have to qual- quantify it. But given the amount of episodes present with Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and then Enterprise, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, I think there are quite a lot. There, there are certainly some that really don't live up to the bill, as you just mentioned. Um, and there are there are some that I think uh, are really well done. Um, I'm thinking uh, to uh, a number of Deep Space Nine episodes. Um, Voyager did it to a lesser extent, and Enterprise to a little bit of a lesser extent as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think Next Generation had probably the most. Um, the Next Generation Deep Space Nine probably had the most. Um, potent episodes uh, involving social commentary that really stand up to this day. Well, and that's interesting that you bring up the number of episodes, because let's let's think about like the original series for a second. Um, obviously, that's at a disadvantage because it had the fewest number of seasons, but it had a lot of social commentary episodes and partly to Jared's point, um, although I have a second thought on this, that's it yeah. had some stinkers. It had some some quote unquote social commentary episodes where either it just wasn't a very good episode or it was hitting you over the head with the message too strongly, you know, coming off as cheesy rather than profound. Um, but I guess like, you know, your initial premise of is the show given too much credit, basically, mm-hmm. for um, for being a show that has this kind of a social commentary in it. And I don't know that it, even, even if you could count up the, the episodes and say, you know, 70% of them are mediocre and 30% of them are, or 20% are outstanding and 10% are bad. So like, let's say, let's say, let's be very, very generous okay. towards your point and say that was the number you came up with. I would still say the show should get the credit for not only the 30 or 20% of really excellent social commentary episodes, but also for creating a platform in which to make those kinds of statements. And and sure, some of them are probably just bad writing, but others are like, you know, they're a, they're a genuine attempt to say something and it just didn't quite work. Mm-hmm. And and then you think about, you know, how television was made during the Berman era, during like the, the nine, late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, where they're churning these things out, mm-hmm. you know, what, 24 yeah. episode seasons, right? Factory. So, so you there's I'll give them a little bit of slack for you know we we get hundreds and hundreds of that, like three hundred episodes or something of the next generation. There's going to be some some stinkers in there, but I would argue that they like they have the the heart and that they they the the show is about ha- being this platform, you know, mm-hmm. in a way about being this platform to you know being a stage for people to sure. go and give th- try their hand at it. I think that's an excellent point, Kayla. Um, you know, when we're talking about these writers' rooms um, during the Berman era, churning out 24 episodes per season, and now we have 13 episode seasons or eight episode seasons um, mm-hmm. in the case of Picard. Um, I think it. I think for one, you can cut the writers a little bit of slack um, to to focus in on the drumhead um, closely for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, this came towards the end of a very packed fourth season. Mm. And uh, the studio wanted to go ahead and do a clip show. And Rick Berman and really? Hiller. Yeah, yeah. And Why? So to save knew, money. Yeah, they knew that, that, that they had the big two-parter redemption coming up at the end of the season. 
and they wanted to save the money, especially the special effects budget for that. This is according to the Next Generation Companion. And so they thought about doing a clip show, which the studio suggested. And if you remember back to the season two finale, Shades of Grey, when Riker yeah. is in sick bay um, and sort of reliving things, that was the closest that Next Gen got to a clip show. I mean, and, that was because of the writer's strike. Right. It was because of the they writer's had an, strike. They had an excuse. It's true. It's true. Um, so Michael Piller didn't didn't want to go ahead and do a clip show at all. He thought that they were cheap and they decided to do basically yeah. a bottle episode, which when mm-hmm. you think mm-hmm. about it, the majority of next gen episodes are bottle episodes, you know, <laughs> they're not, they're not on the planet hell set um, at, at Paramount, you know, they're using a lot of recycled um, VFX um, and they had a $250,000 budget for this one. And so what they did basically is Ronald D. Moore had a story treatment that was just sort of sitting there untouched and Jerry Hmm. Taylor decided to go ahead and pick it up and write a script on it. She liked it a lot. Um, It was titled, it can happen here. And um, basically what Ronald, Ronald D Moore wanted to do was uh, demonstrate that something akin to the McCarthy hearings um, in the fifties or the Salem witch trials could Mm -hmm. happen in the 24th century in the Federation aboard the enterprise of all places. Um, so, and they specifically, I think Picard mentions witch trials, doesn't he? Exactly. He does. And, um, the, the one thing I, I interviewed Nick Meyer, uh, years ago, and I, I found that like, if you look back at Star Trek two and the, the constraints that were placed on that from a budgetary standpoint, sometimes the best work comes from when you have limited mm-hmm. resources available to you. Yeah. Art for so diversity. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a case of where, you know, their backs were against the wall and they had to go ahead and put together a story and something was sitting around. And um, Jerry Taylor did a great job of writing a screenplay for this. Um, She actually uh, credits it in um, one of her books as being some of her best work on Next Generation. Nice. Um, I would agree. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree too. And um, it it played on on some nice things that that uh, were building in season three and season four. So I mean, it mentions the fact that Admiral Satie was the person who had uncovered the conspiracy in the Apple episode uh, title "Conspiracy," and yep. <laughs> which um, was supposed to be right this big like maybe even season long or half season long arc that they sort of ended up abandoning. I think it was supposed to be a much bigger part of the show. We talked about this. I think it was, they were, they were, they knew the Ferengi weren't working and they were trying to come up with a different villain and they had a couple swings and misses before they came up with the board. (laughs) Yeah. Just a couple. Yeah. But the other thing I I like about this episode is it does, we, we talk about how, episodic TNG tends to be and that it's not very serialized and we draw Mm -hmm. we tend to draw a very stark distinction between serialized Star Trek and episodic Star Trek Um, but when you see all of the references that this episode talks about um, Hmm. you know Admiral Satie goes ahead and brings up um, Picard's assimilation yeah Mm -hmm. That was one of the few through lines that was probably, I would say, the strongest through line yeah. in in TNG track was the was Lakitas. They couldn't, they couldn't do something that was such a big deal and then just say, okay, off to our next adventure. 
Right, right, which is good because they didn't, they didn't, you know, a lot of times shows, I think especially in that era or later, a little bit later when there was more of a transition between serialized and and season-long arc storytelling, um, a lot of times you'd see shows be like, oh, something crazy happened, so we can't just forget about it, so we're going to spend the next two episodes, like, of this person, like, having PTSD or grieving over this horrible thing that's happened to them, but then they go on and just forget about it and on to the next adventure, yeah, and I like this yeah. style better, where we have the episode "Family," which wasn't a it didn't hit you over the head with a "this is a PTSD episode," right? It was just wonderful, like because it had to, really good writing. It had amazing writing, um, and then you know they bring up the Borg thing often, and it has repercussions, but it's not like the main focus for a really long time. So that was a bit of a tangent, but just made me think of how much I like the way that they did that in Trek. Yeah, and then what I like about this too is is as we said you know this this is heading into the big redemption two-parter um if we all remember the fact that it centers around the durasses being um complicit with the romulans and attempt to overthrow garon um and you look back at a lot of episodes in season four whether it be data's day when um there is a sort of b plot where they're transporting a Federation ambassador who's Vulcan, who turns out to be a Romulan spy. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a number of episodes in the season that sort of set up this idea of Klingon and Romulan collusion. Um, And then they sort of give you the payoff at the end of the season with redemption, but they don't have sort of a, you know, previously on Star Trek The Next Generation where they show you all of these things. It's sort of a really good point. If it's in the back of your head, you know, you'll recognize that they've been building um, to this, you know, sort of epic season finale. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's obviously important in the drumhead because the, the, sort of the whole, um, I guess the MacGuffin of the episode is chasing down the Romulan conspirator and it turns out to be this That's Klingon. how it starts, yeah. Yeah. That's how it starts. <laughs> Can I also just props to Gene Simmons, who plays Admiral Nora Satie? Okay, like, I, did a, I did a double take there. I thought you were talking about the lead singer of Kiss for a second. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah, no, of course. <laughs> Sorry, I, of course. The name is spelled wrong, so it didn't yeah. even enter my head that way as I was Sorry. reading it on the page. Yeah, and I wasn't. I was looking away. So I'm sorry. It was please, please, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that, that, the other Jean Simmons. Mm. Um, no, she's, I think she's so fantastic as Admiral Seti and really makes, like, the, 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 it really makes me feel like in a lot of ways that I'm watching an original series episode. Because um, she's this woman like sort of of that era, right? She's, if I was going to cast a woman like that in the 1960s show, I would hundred percent hire this woman. Cause just yeah. the way she speaks, the way she holds herself, she's very, I don't want to say old fashioned, but like, you know, Let's old guard. Classic. Classic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She's, I love her in this role. She's so good. And so yeah. I, I've said it before. I have to say it again. I think there are only two actors in all of TNG who are Patrick Stewart's equal. One of them mm. is F. Murray Abraham, who unfortunately was wasted on uh, Ruafo, and then the other <laughs> is her, is Admiral Satie. Uh, I'm sorry, Amadeus yeah, he, is one he, of my favorite movies ever, and the fact that he was, they, we had him, and he, we got Ruafo <laughs> is so sad to me. So sad to me. I agree. I, I love F. Murray Abraham, and and he was he was totally wasted on on that role in Insurrection. Yeah. But, but Jean, I absolutely agree with you, Jared. Yeah. Gene Simmons could, I think she brought such a tremendous presence 
from the second she stepped on board the Enterprise to a, a sort of follow-up scene where she's talking about how she usually, you know, um, does these investigations solo, but she thinks that she's going to have a good partnership with Picard. Um, and she just, yeah, you're absolutely right. She goes toe-to-toe with Patrick Stewart. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think what what it ultimately makes is, is what happens at the end of the episode to her um, and how she just becomes so small because of, of her, her own witch hunt. Um, it makes it all that more powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You've seen, you see her taken down from this very powerful woman to a just crazy old lady. And it's, it's uh, Jonathan Frakes directed this episode and, and the, the final scene, um, not the final scene, but the final scene where we see Satie, when, where they 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 linger on that everyone, the the far the wide shot exactly, and it sort of pans out, makes her look small. Everyone leaves the uh, the um, in the sort of hearing room, mm-hmm. and one of her aides sort of just lingers there for a second, and then she walks out, and it's mm-hmm. there just by herself, um, just looking just so incredibly small, like this this giant of of Starfleet and the Federation has been taken down through by herself. her own actions. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, well, I love her, that shot. Father. I'm glad you brought that it's, up. It's her father's legacy that Picard hangs her with, which is beautiful. Yeah, but it's through her own actions that led him to do that, sure, to bring that up. And She, handed, and, and she it, handed him the rope. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's trying to live up to this legacy, but in reality, she's lost sight of that. Exactly. Uh, and... and it, I don't know if you guys want to go through the episode sort of play by play or talk about uh, a bit of 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 what makes it so special as a social commentary and just sort of broad strokes. So can, uh, if I, can I interject my other point I had, which I think will please? be a nice segue. Yeah, yeah it does get back to that. constitutes good social commentary is I think it's usually better when you're trying to make some comment on something to speak to an issue more broadly rather than to like something super specific, right? Like sure. Like um Law and Order, okay, they always ripped from the headlines, right? Law and Order, their franchise has done twelve hundred episodes in the last thirty years. Twelve hundred episodes. They have to rip stuff wow. from the headlines, right? They have to <laughs> they do about forty episodes a year every year. Um, That's insane. It's insane. It's totally insane. Star Trek shouldn't be like that. Star Trek, you want to do an episode that someone can I mean like like Wrath of Khan, you can watch it when you're young and you can sort of enjoy one part of it. Mm-hmm. You get a little older, you watch it another part. You look back at the historical context, you see something else. I think it's usually a little better to speak to something more generically, a generic issue, rather than something super duper specific. Because if you talk well, about something- Well, it's timeless then okay. that way. A, a, that makes it more timeless, which can make it more uh, easier to appreciate as a piece of art. And B, if, you be, if you're too specific, you might end up- looking terrible later on it might like end up looking yeah. stupid yeah because history will judge you'll change how we judge exactly. you know, things and attitudes exactly the past, like but... i don't know do you guys watch this show the boys no i haven't okay, people have been trying to get terrible. me into it no, but... it's terrible it's terrible and in t- one or two years from now people will look at it and say oh this is so embarrassing really you think I yeah because oh, like interesting the, the homelander character is clearly supposed to be donald trump and it's like once Donald oh. Trump is no longer a public figure, you'll look at it and say, you, you're being ridiculous with this. 
right? Anyway, hmm. that's my opinion. Maybe other people disagree. But I think that's an instance of trying to be too specific where it doesn't work. The drumhead, one of the reasons why it's so great is because it speaks to this universal idea. Like you said, uh -huh. John, at the beginning, it can happen anywhere or any, any time too, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a great thing that Picard says in his final speech. I think he has about like three really good speeches in this episode. And mm -hmm. they're not necessarily long monologues. They're just very, very poignant. Um, but he's talking to Worf in the observation lounge. And if you yeah. remember, Worf sort of gets gets very um, caught up in this investigation. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I, I sort of looking back at it, um, if you remember um, the primary aide to Admiral Satie, um, character by the name of uh, Sabine um, Genstra, who was played by Bruce French, a Betazoid. Um, and it's, it's noteworthy that uh, Marina Sardis doesn't appear in this episode. Oh, um, I, oh, I never put that together. You're right. Yeah, so, uh, so Satie basically uses Sabine as this uh, sort of lie detector in all of the interrogations, um, just in a way that Picard would go ahead and use Troy in a similar circumstance. And, and uh, there's actually a line where um, Picard brings up the fact that he's uncomfortable with um, with Sabine uh, thinking that our other wonderful guest star and the focus of the witch hunt, um, Crimin uh, Simon Tarsus, um, played by Spencer Garrett. And just a little plug, our colleague at Trek Movie, um, Laurie Elster, went ahead and um, interviewed him recently um, for the official Star Trek website. So definitely check that out. Um, but uh, he, he was... He was covering up the fact that he had essentially lied on his personnel forms for Starfleet. And right. But the lie, I think what the lie is, is also important. Exactly. And it's that his paternal grandfather, he put on the form that his paternal grandfather was Vulcan. And in reality, he was Romulan, but it was that lie that the Betazoid aid uh, sort of latched onto and really got Satie to run with. So if he's covering up this, what else is he covering? Mm. If, if his first experience with Starfleet is to lie to it, then what else it, could he have done? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the, the thing that is struck me as a, as a court here, not just when it comes to witch hunts and everything, there's, there's sort of a very strong strain of, well, you know, because you're someone's son or someone's grandson, or you have a certain ethnicity or race of blood within your veins, that suddenly you're suspicious. And yeah. it starts early in the episode because Sabine has a conversation with Worf and Sabine basically says, oh, Worf, you know, I'm, I'm surprised. I'd have thought it would be much more difficult to, to work with you. And Worf's like, why is that? And Sabine says, well, your father betrayed the Klingons to the Romulans. And Worf obviously looks really pissed off. But I think that causes Worf to really double down into this investigation. And maybe it propels him to go ahead and, and say, look, I'm going to prove my allegiance. Mm. That it's to Starfleet. That it's to security since I'm the chief security on this starship. And this happened under my watch. And so that was a really interesting thing that I picked up. But it also plays into later um, the idea that, you know, there, there's something inherently suspicious 
about Crewman Tarsus simply because he has Romulan blood in him and the Romulan mm-hmm. are enemies. And I think that's one thing that makes the episode timeless. Um, as you were saying, Jared, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, well, I was also going to say it's, it's also, it's not incidental that Simon Tarsus is like a non-commissioned technician. So this is a guy with very low status on the ship just to begin with. Cause he has yeah, no rank, that's a good point. Yeah. Right? Yep. I mean, if, if they started off doing this to Worf himself, he'd be like, I've been on the ship since the beginning. I'm the, I'm a department head. I'm a senior, I'm in every senior officer meeting. You're not going to be able to pull that with him. But this young man who has this dark secret and who also, you know, like he says, uh, he just wanted to get out and have adventures when he was 18 rather than stay Mm -hmm. in school for another four years. I don't think that decision was made casually by the writers. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, just a, a thought I had. No, and I think um, going to your point about about what makes you know a social commentary episode really good. Um, of course, you have the writing, then you have sort of I, I agree with you the timeless nature of of the story that you're telling. And while you know Ron Moore and Jerry Taylor sort of focused in on in you know this was uh, 1991, um, focusing on the McCarthy hearings and the Salem witch trials. Um, you could really look at this. And the one thing I was thinking about the entire time um, was after 9-11 and even up to now, how um, Muslims and Arabs were viewed with suspicion just for being who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that this episode really, I think, touches on. Um, just going back to the McCarthy hearings, people were suspicious because of associations and yeah. one that Satie wants to investigate and even Worf wants to investigate is all of Tarsi's associations and friends and all of this stuff. Well, and to that, to that point, John, it's also worth noting that Simon Tarsi's has slightly pointed ears. So it's, you can tell by looking at him, you know, it's not just a hidden thing in his bloodline. It's, he has a visible that you could look at him and pick him out of a room. And that was always something in the episode where I almost had to, look a little bit closer because uh, I don't think that the prosthetics were all that obvious. Oh, really? I always thought they were. Yeah. Maybe we just look at people differently. <laughs> but he, no. he clearly, they're not as pointy as Sarek's. Yeah, they're, right. They're, they're, but they're somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which makes sense. I always liked that little detail. So, right, can, so- I, can, I, can I talk about something that I just have to bring up in this episode? Before because, you do, can I interject a line of dialogue that I think is important that Picard says with regards oh, to yeah. what John just said? Okay, so he's got a great line where he says, he uses the phrase, the, like the line from legitimate fear to rampant paranoia, right? So he acknowledges, hey, this guy, Jadon, he was a spy. He belongs in jail, right? There was absolutely the need to have, for lack of a better term, like a law enforcement outreach to shut this guy down. I mean, the yeah, same he with, will like, be tried for his crimes. Yeah, and it's it also, I mean, there were actual communist spies at the time of the McCarthy hearings. Like, that didn't just come out of nowhere. It's something that often right, gets Right, right, that's a good point. It's right. It's, Unlike the witch hunt. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. yeah, that's... that's <laughs> there were no actual witches. That we that we know of, not according to The <laughs> Simpsons. According to The Simpsons, Marge and her sisters were it's witches true. at that time. But um, that's a trio of four episodes, so it's not canon. Touche, you're right and I'm wrong. So, so I, <laughs> I think it is important to acknowledge that, that uh, how do you juggle the need to have security measures while also 
not like racially profiling people or whatever, any kind yeah. of profiling. Yeah. And so, cause you can't, there's this quote from Benjamin Franklin that gets misused by everyone. Where he <laughs> says, he says, uh, anyone who would exchange a moment uh, of security for safety does not deserve either or something like that. Mm-hmm, and yeah. he was talking about this very idiosyncratic moment of the French and Indian war or something like that. Um, and you, you do need to have both of those things, right? Like if you walk through a metal detector to get on an airline to prove that you don't have a weapon on you, you are giving up a little security for safety. I think everybody right. acknowledges that's good, right? But there's a line and it's like, but where is a line. that line? And so, and that's the challenge because there is no, there is no answer to that, right? Yeah. There is right. no of course. answer to that. Anyway, so that, that's just something in light of what you said, John, that where I, need, I thought the context was important. Again, uh, one of Picard's fantastic speeches in this episode. So, very, no. very nicely, very nicely described. It's interesting that you bring up that quote um, from Benjamin Franklin because Picard says a variation of that in this episode, and it's it's when he's on the stand and he's using um, he's using Judge uh, Satie's uh, Admiral Satie's father mm-hmm. sort of words to go ahead and defend himself, but also try to prove that you know Admiral Satie is. Completely going against so father. whack job, yeah, and 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 it's interesting because he he basically uses that Benjamin Franklin quote, but it's attributed to uh, Judge Satie, the Admiral's father. I personally actually like Picard's version a lot better. I, yeah, I do, I do. But is that the from the first when the first link at the chain is forged or something starts off that way? It is. It is. See, and the thing I like about that is he's, he basically what he's talking about is a defense of what we might call traditional liberal values, like the freedom of speech and the freedom of association and those or the, the right to not testify against yourself, all those the Fifth Amendment type of stuff. And I, I think that's what he's referring to, that no matter how righteous someone's goals are, no matter how deplorable someone might be or what awful crime we think they might have done, Someone needs those safeguards that we have or else our system begins to break down. Right. Yeah. Everyone has to be afforded those and same safeguards. That, this is, uh, I, I think it was important that the episode s- established some things under Federation law. Mm. Um, we remember yep. some of, you know, the greatest uh, courtroom episodes of, um, in Star Trek history, you know, even going back to the original series with Court Marshall and the Menagerie, mm. um, and you know, general orders were thrown out. Um, you know, so the writers, I think, we can't look at it through the lens of what our laws are here in the United States or wherever you were listening to this podcast from. Um, they had to go ahead and really uh, talk about what are the laws and the rights in the United Federation of Planets. Although, I mean, I think they pretty clearly paralleled those in the United States. Yeah, exactly. And they actually go, Picard goes ahead and says, this is the first time they reference it, that um, there's a Federation founding documents, a constitution and a bill of rights, and that the right to, uh, the right to, uh, not incriminate yourself is the Federation's seventh guarantee. Mm. Oh yeah. The seventh um, guarantee. Yeah. So, uh, so it, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting um, how, how they bring that up, but you know, I, 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 I guess I appreciated that because, you know, I don't want to always assume that we're approaching this from a very 
you know, um, Americanized point of view, um, even though the writers might have I that. Mean, I mean, we think, are, though. We are. I mean, not yeah. us, but, I mean, Trek is very definitely an American Very, show. very much yeah. so. But I, I just thought that was a nice touch to talk a little bit about, you know, the legal framework that's that's in play there. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was cool. It makes it feel more real. And yeah, like like something different from today. He doesn't mention like the United States Constitution or the Yanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do feel terrible about Simon Tarsus, though, because while he was clearly exonerated from any sort of charge related to Jaden's espionage or even the, the sabotage of the Warp Corps, which turned out to be a you know, a fault in an accident, yeah. an accident. Um, Picard basically says that because he lied on his personnel forms, that his career is essentially over. Yeah. I found that to be a little disappointing just in, in the grand scheme of things about Star Trek that, you know, because you were so worried about how, how writing down that one of your ancestors was Romulan, you know, the, the current enemies of the Federation that you went ahead and, uh, that they caused an individual to to want to hide that and that would be enough to ruin and like why are they asking in the first place you know what i mean Uh, like why is that diversity requirements yeah but that's not supposed to be used against you you think they could they could detect that in a in a blood test or something like you know in the u.s like if you're you if you have to give demographic information for something um, it's not allowed to be used to discriminate against you. Like uh, for, we have to laws get, like, to, to get like a security clearance. It actually can be. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it depends. You know, I, mean, I, I think uh, that's, I, like, that's yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, there are some countries uh, I, like it, they, like in the United Kingdom, if you want to get a security clearance and go to work for one of their intelligence services, your parents have to be born in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um. In the United States, it's a little bit different. You know, you have to be a citizen. Your parents might not might not be citizens, but um, they don't go into you know your grandparents and your aunts and uncles and everything like that. But um, certainly, if let let's just throw out you know a random adversary of the United States right now, um, Iran. Let's say that mm-hmm. your parents you know are on green cards from Iran. Um, that might cause the the security people to to uh look a little bit more into your ties mm. and yeah, i i, I think sense. it would i think it would eliminate you from consideration immediately um i don't think it would i don't think it would but i i think that it would cause uh a little bit more investigation going on certainly uh, certainly and, and maybe maybe that's what tarsus was trying to um, avoid to avoid here, you know, the extra scrutiny because that sure. could have maybe delayed how quickly he got into Starfleet and got out there into space. Because yeah. he did talk about how, you know, he would he would sit on the parade grounds of Starfleet Academy under that same oak tree that Picard would study under all the time. So that's another thing I like about this episode. Uh, you know, a lot of good callbacks um, to to things that have been mentioned in previous episodes. Um, and they're 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 not just you know done for fan service. They're done really to go ahead and and to tell the story well. And that's something that causes Picard to really relate with this young man. Whenever um, anyone brings up 
that damn tree or Boothby. Like, if you want to get on Picard's good side, just be like, yeah. just be like, ah, I really made a friend with. I mean, you'll you'll think this is really stupid, but um, I made really good friends with the groundskeeper, and he'll be like, Boothby, you're my best friend now. Tell me all of your stories of Basically. Boothby. Basically, like pulling out Scooby snacks for Scooby Doo and Shaggy. Exactly. It's like Boothby. Huh? Exactly. That's, yeah, he just loves Boothby. As soon as he said oak tree, he's like, oh well. Now I have something to relate to you about. It's this tree. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a strange and wonderful man, Jean Luc Picard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a, an adorable way you just expressed that. <laughs> I love him. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, and this is some of very, very fine work by Patrick Stewart as well in this episode. Um, the other thing that's weird is sometimes Star Trek doesn't remember its own canon. There was like a 50-year gap before the episode The Neutral Zone, the season closer of the first season of TNG, where they said Romulans just disappeared and we had absolutely nothing to do with them, Right. And so it's kind of weird whenever they make references back to the Romulan Star Empire, back to that period, because it should be like, wait, nobody should care about them. They were just gone. They were in this isolationist phase. So you'd think if there were ever a time, and presumably Simon Tarsis grew up through all that, right? Presumably there were no headlines about Romulans uh, on any Federation newspaper the whole time he was growing up. Anyway, maybe that's nothing. Maybe I'm just being pedantic, but I thought to interject that. No, I, I do think it's it's a good point because I mean they they go out of their way to mention that Simon Tarsis grew up on Mars Colony, um, and that his paternal grandfather was Romulan. So you sort of go back, you know, um, two generations, and you're in that period when the Romulans are are very reclusive. Um, yet you have a Romulan seemingly. Um, you know, marrying or having a kid with a human. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm sure that Romulans were, select Romulans were out throughout the galaxy at that point. But it does bring a good point there that, you know, um, the Romulan Empire at least was was really in a state of isolation and no one knew what was going on with them. Oh, and I'm, I can't believe you haven't brought it up yet, Jared. I'm going to bring you to the punch. Lay it on me. This is where the, or at least one of the iconic Picard facepalm memes oh. comes from. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is when he's sitting in the chair, mm-hmm. when, but right before he makes his final breakout speech, and uh-huh. then, then um, Admiral Sati shows that she's a whack job. Uh, but there's actually a few things I want to say about this scene. We keep th- talking about it, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't wait to bring this up. Um, first of all, just shout out to the guy who plays, what's his name? The other, I guess he's another admiral that's brought in. Um, uh, admiral admiral Henry, Henry. Who has admiral no Henry. lines. lines. <laughs> and he sits there, like, looking super disturbed. And just uh, uh, that's such a great, like, comedic moment when he, uh-huh. he kind of, like, looks around awkwardly, gets out of his chair and just leaves. And like, just leaves. I've seen enough here. Like, <laughs> he's, he's, he's like, get the fuck out of here. Uh, um, so he's great. But something that I really, really want to call attention to is something that Lori Ulster, friend of the show, um, a frequent visitor on the show pointed out to me, and now I cannot unsee it. And it is the the 
chair on that little stage where they're interrogating people, right? It's supposed to be this like hot seat, right? This this is the chair. There's one light shining on me from above. Everyone's watching. It's supposed to be this really fear-inducing place. It's like a shitty office chair <laughs> with caster wheels. It's bad. Can we please can we please put an image of that chair in the masthead on Trek movie for this episode, please. Oh God, yeah. Okay, I'll pull out the chair. The okay. chair. I don't even know. I'll just I'll just find a picture of a dark room with a light on it and get an office chair clip art and put it in there, and you'll never know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else about this, you know, I mean, like you said, it's a bottle show, so it's again they were saving money. They didn't. Pl- I know they're trying to save money. I know, anyway, guys, but can. come on, this is like the most important prop in the entire episode. So disappointing. It, it certainly doesn't measure up to um, court martial, where Kirk's sitting in the special chair with the with the palm print reader or DNA. That's right. That's that right. Ahead and and automatically causes the computer to read his entire Starfleet record. <laughs> Classic. I would have loved a little throwback to that. <laughs> Just that would have been nice. As a kid, I loved it. <laughs> well, they did that in. Um, Measure of a Man, they did the same thing. With Data, they read out, they're starting to read out all his awards, everything. They're like, all right, I think we've heard enough. And it's like, no, let's let computer, you know, let's let's hear all of his commendations. The thing is, that's probably like an interrogation tactic to demoralize someone. Like if you put someone in a Kirk-like sort of bridge chair throne type of thing, then he's going to feel more in charge than if you put him in Something that Office Max wouldn't sell. <laughs> but it's Office Max of the future. I mean, that's part of the problem, right? It's not. It's not just a shitty little chair. It's like legit a 1991 office chair. Space Office Max. Space. If they had put some shiny fabric on it, since that's usually what they do to make something spacey and futury, mm-hmm. like the bed sheets. Oh goodness, the bed sheets. Maybe I could have forgiven them. Or put like some some blue beverage in his hand because there's no naturally occurring blue food in the United in uh, the in the world. world. Yeah. So yeah. if you eat something blue, it means you're in space. <laughs> yeah, especially if it's just like blue cubes. Think if things are geometrically shaped. Um, <laughs> random fact is apparently that I was looking up in the in the companion the set that they used for the interrogation room, because they used it before, um, I think, in the Defector. Um, but it's actually a redress of the Enterprise A's, Enterprise A's bridge. Really? Yeah. I was wondering what it was a redress, because it's clearly a redress of some room we've seen before, but I could, I'm like, it's not 10 forward. Huh. So is that just a standing set that they kept? Didn't... I? Didn't they, wasn't the battle bridge also? Oh, that was the same set, wasn't it? Dress? Yeah, because I think if you look at some of like, there are these weird, I don't know, like windows or lights. Um, uh, sort of like at, at the top of the set, because it's, it's they made. Have, the, yeah, they have like a particular shape. Yeah, at least the way that, that Frakes shoots it, it make, he shoots a lot from a very high vantage point. So it makes the room look very sort of cavernous and vast. And um, you see those little sort of like portals or whatever they are. Um, but those look like straight out of the battle bridge and um, something that, you know, I, I don't think we see them much in the movies. But uh, 
yeah, I, I was looking for like little clues because I read it in the companion. I'm like, really? And I'm sort of like looking around at it. Hmm. I think I missed the office chair. <laughs> why, not, why not give him, you know, Kirk's <laughs> uncomfortable new captain's chair um, from uh, Star Trek V. Um, but but oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had never noticed it until Lori mentioned it. And now, now all of you all have you, to, yep. have, you know, now you all have this knowledge. You will never now, unsee it. Every time I see that face palm, all I'm going to be thinking about is the chair that the, he's in. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I have one um, item that I wanted to talk about in terms of the science fiction element in the episode. Okay. So I think something that can be a little challenging again with the timelessness is whatever sci-fi ideas you introduce into it. If you introduce an idea that becomes outdated, that may be difficult in terms of enjoying something many years down the road. Sure. Also, it, it might be it might make things too hokey. Like for example, one of the choices they made on Battlestar Galactica, it was specifically to make the technology as low tech as possible, right? To the point where um, Ad, uh, Captain Adama says in the pilot, well, we learned that if you have open circuits, the Cylons, because they're such good hackers, can get into anything. So we had to go backwards in our technology to... So that's the way they explain it in universe. But the reason they're doing it in terms of the presentation is so that it felt more like a uh, more contemporary rather than more sci-fi-y. Um, one thing that I like in this is there's a part, there's only, there's only two little science fiction elements in it. And then the rest is all just human drama. One is of course, um, you talked about the Betazoids, uh, misusing his empathy, um, which a lot of the stuff he's doing is just like, you know, CIA interrogator stuff that people get good at just by being able to read body language. But then the other sci-fi element that I really like is they say that Jadon, the Klingon spy Mm -hmm. has been putting information into his like bloodstream into his Mm -hmm. DNA engrams. Basically he has like space diabetes and he's like putting it in his (laughs) insulin. Exactly. I thought that was a really interesting concept. Isn't that that so cool? It is so cool. He's got this hypo syringe that can read isolinear chips and then somehow go ahead and synthesize that information into proteins that would be in his bloodstream. Yeah. And that plays into the, the idea that there could be more to Jadon's little spy ring yep. on the enterprise, besides the fact that there was, he was also accused of sabotaging the warp core, which makes it kind of strange because if you're there collecting information as this scientific exchange officer, and you're spying, you're not going to go ahead and just sabotage the Enterprise's work core. What are you going to get? Well, you're still on board and it could explode. Right. It doesn't make any sense. But the idea, I think that it it does have a little bit of merit. And this is where sort of Tarsus gets pulled into it. Since he's a medical technician, as as you said, Jared, he has sort of, you know, the idea of the, uh, this sort of like space diabetes or whatever syndrome it is that um, he requires regular injections for. Um, And Tarsus is uh, a medical technician that maybe on one or two occasions went ahead and gave him a, a, an injection. Um, So uh, that, that sort of is where you have that linkage there Um, and, and where there could be legitimate suspicion. But I think, you know, once, once you, you start seeing, the details of the fact that you know uh, this 
Tarsus maybe had one or two interactions with him and they didn't have any social interaction or anything like that. You know, it kind of rules him out as a suspect unless you have more information. And that's when, you know, Satie and, and Sabine, her aide, really, really get on to this idea that he's hiding something. Mm-hmm. The, the, the other thing is the, this um, uh, uh, MacGuffin, I guess, is so cunningly devised that it lends itself to rampant paranoia. Because it's like, this guy hid classified information in his blood, right? He didn't have it on a, a, a computer or a tricorder or whatever that we could have scanned, that we even knew he had. It was literally invisible in every possible way. And so that leans into her going to extraordinary measures to trying to stamp out every root and stem of this. So it works great from a sci-fi standpoint it works great thematically it works great for the plot spectacular choice and, I agree. and, and very creative mm-hmm. yeah and, i always thought that was really cool and and i like the fact that and i think this plays into the the investigation too is that they're not only considering whether jadon could have put this into his blood but he could have had a willing accomplice that he injected it into or an unwilling accomplice ah that he yeah so they could end up on shore leave in six months and be somewhere and, you know, get ambushed in their in their quarters. And um, someone comes along and takes a blood sample. And that's an interesting thought. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. So it, it, I, I think it, it and, and one thing that Satie says is that uh, she was taught by her father that the United Federation of Planets was the finest organization ever conceived. And that her cause for the past four years, um, while she was an admiral and then in retirement, was to see that the union would be preserved. Uh-huh. So it's this idea that that even even the people with the best intentions to go ahead and preserve the institutions that they serve can take things a little bit too far. Oh and, yeah, yeah. She clearly then, thought she was standing up for the beliefs that her and father instilled in her and and others. Right. And, and I think that is another just timeless element um, to to this episode. And we can draw so many different parallels um, to to uh, examples that have happened in this country, have happened in other countries and all throughout history. Mm-hmm. And I think, as, as you said, Jared, that's that's really what makes this uh, stand on its own and hold up after all of these years. That's one thing I was thinking through the entire episode is. You know, wow, this episode really aged well. And I think a lot of yeah. TV tends to age well, not all of it. But this <laughs> one particularly, you know, you could put this episode out, um, you know, today and and there are parallels. You could see the social commentary. Yeah, which which the fact that they didn't like, like the, and we talked about it on another episode. There's an element in... Uh, Undiscovered Country, which I think is otherwise spectacular, and it's a deleted scene, so I guess I can forgive it, where they introduce the character of Colonel West, which is Nick Meyer's sort of tongue-in-cheek aha for satirizing Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North in the 1980s. And it's like, okay, shut up. That's not, that's stupid. That's not clever. And (laughs) you look back at now, it just looks dumb. Whereas this, because there's none of that ripped from the headlines elements, makes it work so well. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and I think just another thing that that to follow on to the to those points um, that really makes this 
timeless and it makes you feel like no matter when you're watching it, you feel like they're talking to you. You know, they're mm. not talking to someone in the 1990s, they're talking to you. No. Um, and I also think this is a this is a good way to to end out this podcast is that Picard uh, reminds us that, you know, the the price the price that we pay um to to that we must, you know, is vigilance, which is a Thomas Jefferson quote is what he's he's who he's quoting right there. We must always, you know, remain vigilant and not ever allow this kind of thing to happen because it's so easy to fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. I agree, Kayla. He he points out that, and I think it it's really the writers talking to us, the audience at the time. Picard basically says, he tells Worf that, you know, these things can easily start up again. And there are people like Satie who are always going to be among us waiting, mm-hmm. for the, waiting to incite fear in the right climate. Um, and I, I think that, you know, in the 24th century, um, in, in the sort of uh, next generation universe of, of sort of Roddenberry's vision, um, you know, we can talk about how in other podcasts about how the show changed, um, you know, under Michael Piller and um, other writers. But, you know, this certainly is something that I think it's, it's a thread that other um, shows and episodes want to go ahead and pick up. Just basically people within the organization taking things too far, but thinking that they're doing the right thing. Yep. The good, best of intentions. And at, at least this time, at least this time she wasn't hunting down little space cockroaches that were taking over people's brains and, <laughs> and giving them and give and making them old men switch bodies with stunt men for very terrible fight scenes <laughs> with Commander Riker. Those things terrified me as a kid. That, well, they, they did to. give us the most gruesome scene ever in yeah. Star yeah. Trek history, which yeah. is that and the SETI Alpha uh SETI Alpha Six eels. Yeah. But at least that wasn't as gory. Like this one, you see no, like a dude explode. Yeah, yeah poor, poor Remick. <sighs> On that note, yeah. we'll leave you with that gorgeous image of an exploding man, ribcage, and spine left on display with a space cockroach inside of him. I um, just hope he had a better chair to sit in while they were phasering him to death. Well, he did. He had a very nice chair. So, you know, Priorities. Priorities. He deserved it. Not the chair, notwithstanding. I think all of us agree that the drumhead is one of the best, the very best episodes. I would say of Star Trek. With that, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I agree. Uh, as well. IMD, the IMDb ranking is number twenty-seven for TNG, which is completely off. I think yeah. it's it's one of the top three episodes of TNG, with along with maybe Tapestry and Yesterday's Enterprise would be my own personal rankings. Oh, fascinating. Oh, that's another episode. Another episode. We'll have to have a podcast on that as well. John, I hope you can join us for that again. It was great to have you on. Thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye.